it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and him, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Later in the show, we'll be talking to James Burrows, who's divisional director. Divisional director, Kieran, is that right? That sounds impressive to me. Let's go for divisional director of sport at insurance brokers Howden about feeling the strain they're reporting to the cost of injuries across the top five European leagues at the midpoint in the season. I think they've broken a record for losing the BAFTA nomination, Kieran. Not even, <laughs> not even halfway through the intro. Uh, first, though, it's Newsday, and, and talk about feeling the strain. I have to reveal, Kieran, this is a second pod we've recorded in two days because uh, you may be hearing this on Thursday, but for logistical reasons, we are recording this on Monday. So two hours work in two days, Kieran. It's a, it's a disgrace, isn't it? Absolutely um, outrageous. It is. It also means that if producer Guy makes the winning bid for Chelsea, we'll have to deal with it on Sunday, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, luckily, though, Kieran, luckily, this story broke just hours ago, so we can fit it in. Brighton have published their figures. And have I got this right, Kieran? They're losing £4 million a day, mainly on beard oil and that unwise investment in the couscous mine. Well, it's not, not quite that bad, but uh, yeah, a million pounds a week for a club that's in the promised land of the Premier League is, uh, it, it, it's it's par for the course, sadly, these days. Um, we just keep we just keep coming out with these stories. And, and now it, it's a bit like sort of COVID news. You, you just become completely immune to it and, and, you, and it normalises um, the losses. But uh, yeah, my, my club... Uh, Brought out the results uh, at midday, and uh, I took a quick look, and uh, of course, you know, got into spreadsheet heaven on the back of that. But it's, uh, you know, we've we've just lost huge sums of money. You know, nine, nine years out of the last ten, uh, you know, significant numbers. Um, the the owner Tony Bloom, he's put in four hundred and twenty seven million pounds of his own dosh into the club. Which which is great, you know. As as a fan, uh, you know, he's he is a fan first and foremost, rather than the businessman. As far as far as his relationship with the club is concerned, but it does show just how difficult it is a to get there and, and b to stay there. You know, Kieran, you've talked quite often recently about um, owners becoming bored. Is there a fear? Because I mean, if if that was to happen with Tony Bloom at Brighton, you're in trouble. Yeah, but. 
you know, are you going to stop supporting Palace? Am I going to stop supporting the Albion? You know, t- Tony Bloom's been going to the, going to watch the club since he was seven. His uh, you know his his elder brother has supported the club all his life. Um, one of his uncles, I think, or his granddad was was uh, was on the board as well. So it it would be highly highly improbable that he would lose uh, the love of the club. But he, he might he might get fed up writing out all of these checks and and decide to tone it down a bit. Um, but uh, mm. I, I don't think it would go any further than that. Were you surprised by these figures, Kieran? Because on the face of it, some of them were were all right. The wage spending was okay, wasn't it? Um, yeah, we, of, of all of the clubs that have published their accounts to date, Brighton have shown uh, have revealed that they've got the lowest wage bill. Um, and you know, we, we know we know that money talks in football. And I I regularly have uh, differences of opinion with people. I just say, you know, we've got a bottom six budget. Don't expect to be outside of the bottom six. Uh, whereas other people seem to think that. You know, we we should be trying to compete further up the table, and then you ask them, well, in which case that the money's got to come from somewhere. Where exactly do you suggest? Because the owner is sticking in loads of money, um, and then sort of the the the, the conversation tends to uh, yeah, yeah change into something else, such as you know favorite <coughs> cheese or something like that. <laughs> Well, at, at Brighton, of course, many conversations course. turn into favourite cheese, Kieran. We know that, <laughs> uh, and how best to use it in the Guinness soup. I, I imagine, Kieran, it's the same story at Brighton as it is at Palace and at Burnley and at Southampton and clubs of that level. It's probably generational, eh? where fans of our age are only too aware of what can happen when you try and do what Charlton did all those years ago and, and break mm-hmm. the bank rather than swim along merrily in the Premier League. Whereas fans under the age of thirty who have who have known more Premier League than not Premier League, uh, just get a bit bored swimming along in the middle of the Premier League and they want the glory of Champions League football. And that comes at an almighty cost that most clubs in the Premier League can't afford, isn't it? Yes. Um, and you've only got to, you're right. You know, it's happened to other clubs. If you think about Stoke City yeah. under Tony Pulis, they, they used to finish top 10 on a regular basis, but the fans, you know, or no, no, not the fans. Some fans began became to get a bit fed up with that. Um, you know, we, we saw it at Bolton and and Sunderland, um, and you know th- those clubs have uh, have have had a some pretty grim times since then. So, uh, you know, but it, it's there's nothing wrong with a fan being ambitious and being a daydreamer. But at the same time, you've you've got to temper that with realistic expectations. You 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 can't beat the house. In, yeah. you know, at, at the casino, and you can't beat the house when it comes to uh, football, football, uh, football, and wages. You know, Leicester City did it. It's it's never going to happen again in our lifetime, in all probability. <clears throat> well, because the other clubs won't let it happen in the top six. Basically, mm. yeah, we're having at Palace the um, the daydream realism scenario at the moment. It's like we're going to Wembley. That's definitely happening. We're daydreaming about going back to win the FA Cup. That's not happening. In the meantime, you just have to enjoy what is happening, and and you never know. Um, yeah. Further down the league, uh, Rochdale, who are a club close to our hearts at the moment, uh, Rochdale AFC have said that no current board members or employees have been charged with breaches of EFL regulations. Yes. Um, a few weeks ago, the EFL put up a statement on their website to mm. say that uh, it was looking into concerns that it had with regard to the club officials and relevant persons. A relevant person is, is normally a significant shareholder. Um, in in relation to 
um, own, I think things broadly linked to the owners and directors test. So with, with regards to this, um, as, as people may be aware, there was a hostile takeover <laughs> attempt uh, by an organisation called Morton House last year. Um, and what what this, this company did is, is that uh, Rochdale was quite unique in the sense that instead of having an owner, you know, we've just been talking about Tony Bloom or we've got the Glazers at Manchester United or, uh, you know, we've got Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City. We, we've got, uh, you know, you, you've got your guys at Palace. You've got, you know, Harris and Blitzer um, and so on. Yeah. Um, instead of having one owner or perhaps, you know, four or five owners, the the shareholdings in Rochdale are, are very much spread uh, amongst a large number of people. And, and that's great, uh, you know, for those of us that, that – are familiar with you know the cooperative movement which was set up in Rochdale. I think it's a fantastic uh, throwback to sort of community or, or broad-based ownership. But what this company, um, Morton House, did was Rochdale shares, most people just held on to them as a memento. You might have 100 shares, you might have 500 shares passed down from generation to generation. The market value of those shares was, was probably no more than two quid a throw. Um, and it looks as if Morton House went in and said, well, we'll offer you £4 or £6 or £8 for your shares. And, and some people said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's just gathering dust. You know, we're not doing anything with it in terms of the share certificate. Um, and, and they started to sell some of their shares. And Morton House built up. Um, they built up to around about, I think it's about 42, 43% of the club in total with a view that once they got to 51%, they've then got control. Um, Rochdale fans weren't comfortable with this. They, they, I think there was a meeting between one of the fan groups and the prospective owners. And I think it's fair to say, uh, things, things didn't go down particularly well. Mm. Um, and, uh, Rochdale fans then started to do an awful lot of homework with regards to Morton house. Um, and the, the club then issued some more shares, but it didn't let Morton House buy any. So therefore, Morton House's shareholding fell from 42%. Uh, yeah, I think it's now around about 27, 28. Um, now, in theory, when you get to a particular threshold, once, once you get to, I think it's uh, 30% um, of a, a company or of an EFL football club, you are obliged to tell the EFL that this triggers a potential owners and directors test. Um, and what appeared to be the case in relation to Rochdale was that the club didn't process for whatever reasons or some person at the club did not process the documents, which allowed Morton House to not only get to 30%, but they should have then immediately have had to take the, the owners and directors test. That didn't apply. Why didn't that take place? We're not quite sure. Um, so the EFL have charged the club, officials, relevant persons. And I think the intriguing thing, which, which Rochdale have now come out to say, um, is that no current, Ooh. and that is the key word, because I'm not going to name names, but if you go on to a company's house, you will see the list of people who have become directors, which is fine, but also perhaps some of the names of people who are no longer at the club. So no current board members or employees have been charged. 
go down that particular crumb trail and you might uh, you you might perhaps get an indication as to who some of the people who have been charged are mm. and what are the potential ramifications of these charges for those people well um you know the EFL in theory has you know a an unlimited range of sanctions having said that if if the people involved are no longer officials of football clubs yeah. there's there's not a lot the EFL can do um they they could say well we don't particularly want you to come back to the EFL but even so i'm i'm not convinced that that's the case uh, you know that they've got peter ridsdale on the board of the yeah, efl yeah, and yeah. you know and as we've said before he's he's been banned from being a director of all companies in the country for a period of you know many many years and and as soon as soon as his tariff came up he he, he bounced back um and and also to be fair um i, I was talking to some uh, or a fan of of preston north end um, at the uh, at the gig last week at, at Wimbledon, there are a uh, couple live show. They yeah, gave, they gave me a sticker. Oh well, and, <laughs> and they said, you know, that they're quite happy with Peter Ridsdale. So okay. yeah, I'm 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 not saying that he's bad at his job, but you know, to, to get banned from being a director of any company for for six or seven years, it, that's quite an achievement. I can assure you. Yeah, he's not necessarily bad at this job. Hmm. He's, he can be great at this job. It doesn't mean that he hasn't been terrible at other jobs. It's not not for us to say, Kieran, but we can Absolutely. point out. We can point out he was banned for several years. So, um, and you're right to point out, Palace do have uh, major investors called Harris and Blitzer. Uh, and as a Millwall fan friend of mine at the time said, are any of other Santa's Santa's reindeer intended <laughs> to take over as well? Uh, which probably would have been funny if I'd got the right words in the correct order. Swindon Town can't take card payments for next year's season tickets because of an ongoing court battle. This is not the ongoing court battle, is it? The Gareth Barry ongoing court battle? No, no. Th- right. This it, this is another one, and uh, you know, we, we again, Swindon is is a. Uh, is, is a team that we have generated an affection for because they went through some hard times. Um, and this is an overhang of the Lee Power era. Uh, Lee Power was uh, the former yeah. owner yeah. of uh, of, of uh, Swindon Town. Uh, yeah, Rob Angus, who's been on the show, um, who's who's now the chief executive of, yeah. uh, of Swindon Town. And, and I'd like to think that it was being on this podcast that got him the job. Um, but it's probably pushing it a bit. Um, I think he would have mentioned it, Kieran. I mean, I think he probably put his, would have slipped it on his CV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so this this is a winding up order in oh. respect of Swindon Cowan, uh, and it comes from an American company called AC Sports Wiltshire, um, and it relates to um, what they considered to be, um, I think, some form of loan to the club, where under Lee Powers. Uh, period of control the, the the present owners feel that that's not the case and therefore there's no obligation to repay it um and yeah, therefore the court is going to deal with things but in the meantime um the credit card companies you know, with the credit card companies they, they credit check um corporations just as the way that they, they credit check us because remember if you if you buy something using a credit card for more than a hundred pounds then under the consumer credit act if if it is faulty um you're either in, you're, you're entitled to a refund and if the company that's uh or rather you're entitled to a refund if the company goes bust now if they see a potential winding up order against swindon town yeah. what they're concerned about is well what happens if things 
don't work out. This winding up order is significant. People have bought their season tickets using credit cards, and therefore we have to go and pay out. So therefore they've just said, we're not going to take on that risk. Yeah, and, and risk is something which we'll be uh, discussing, of course, with, uh, with, with James Burroughs when we do our insurance interview uh, a bit later. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some of our silver tongue friends, Kieran, as you put it, would, would settle this argument very quickly. But um, So would Uncle Terry, to be fair. Uncle Terry would settle many arguments very quickly. Uh, what's your favourite cheese? I'll ask Uncle Terry. He'll tell me. <laughs> um, but obviously Swindon Town are under new ownership now, but they're the same uh, corporation as such, aren't they? They're the same company that they were when Lee Powers was in charge. So presumably they are liable still for this outstanding court case, aren't they? The court case wasn't against Lee Power, it's against Swindon Town Football Club, I presume. Exactly. This this is sometimes known as the veil of incorporation, that there is a there's a separation of owners from the companies themselves. So although Lee Power may have instigated this arrangement with AC Sports Wiltshire, and we don't know whether it's a loan or some other form of arrangement, um, it is the company that's on the hook for it. That sounds like a cure B-side, doesn't it? The veil of incorporation. <laughs> One of those unnecessary instrumentals that they throw in every now and again. Sounds exactly the same as everything else. Although you, you, today, I, today I, is 42 I, years, 42 years since uh, A Forest was released, the greatest song of all time. Well, do you know what? Ali agrees with you on that, which is um, she's a huge fan of The Cure. I did try doing the sloppy lipstick and curly hair look, just but it didn't go down well. Um, <laughs> it doesn't look that good on him now at the moment, I have to say. There comes a time when he's got to admit that he's older than we are, Kieran. Yes. Um, Robbie Keane. Uh, no, sorry, why should he? He can, be, he can dress and behave exactly how he wants to. Uh, Robbie Keane has been urged to pay back €500,000 to the Football Association of Ireland to help grassroots football. Pay it back from where, Kieran? Well, um, Robbie Keane was in 2018 uh, appointed as Mick McCarthy's assistant. And uh, he's on €250,000 a year. And uh, Mick McCarthy left his position uh, in, in 2020 and was replaced by Stephen Kenny. Now, Robbie Keane uh, wasn't part or isn't part of Stephen Kenny's uh, backroom team. So uh, since then, he, he has a contract which entitles him to €250,000 a year. And uh, this is this is where I start to feel a bit uncomfortable. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and again, our silver tongue friends would agree, contracts are contracts. Yeah. Um, but in steps um, an opportunist politician from uh, Fina Gale. Um, and he says that uh, Robbie Keane has been earning income with little to show for it. I'm thinking, hold on, <laughs> this is coming from a politician, <laughs> you know, pot kettle black. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, th- this is a bit of you know, grandstanding, a bit of populism. The money should be given back uh, to the FAI, FAI to help grassroots football. Well, if we are looking at people who have uh, have taken advantage of the FAI. Uh, over the years, especially over some recent years, and I'm mentioning no names. Yeah. Um, that, but read the book called Champagne Football uh, if if you want to look into this in, in a bit more depth. Um, then as far as I'm concerned, Robbie Keane isn't one of those people. You know, he's, he's, he's represented his country. He's you know, I, I remember doing absolute cartwheels when Robbie Keane scored some goals at times. Um, and, and he's been a, a fantastic player for the country, who of whom have have celebrated his contribution uh, historically. So th- th- this looks like a, a little bit of political opportunism uh, using using Robbie Keane as the fall guy. 
Well, uh, as we found out in the early days of the pandemic with Matt Hancock, it's very easy to use football as a diversion, isn't it? And uh, when Matt Hancock said, "Never mind PPE. Look at all that money the footballers are earning. They should be <laughs> basically." It's it's, it's it's literally. It's not literally. I was going to say it's literally throwing the dead cat on the table, but that's <laughs> it's not. It's not literally, is it? Although again, Uncle Terry, I imagine, would have done that in a couple of meetings as well. Yeah. Uh, a cat that wasn't dead when Uncle Terry came into the meeting. Uh, City Football Group. It looked like they were uh, acquiring another club, Kieran. Yes, this is a Dutch club, uh, NAC Breda, um, and uh, the, the the empire uh, is growing all the time. Um, City, I, I think they are aware that uh, Brexit has has caused challenges for clubs in the UK, um, and you know we know that they've got. I think they own forty four percent of Girona. They they've got investments in in other places in Europe as well as well as other continents, um, and the the multi club ownership model, as far as City's owners are concerned, where you get that continuity of training of recruitment of uh, of data analytics which which goes throughout the whole group um, i think they're starting to now see that uh, that is generating a return um and, and they and they want to expand their empire um and you know dutch football as as you know you and i grew up with you know the gobsmackingly great oh. dutch teams of, yeah. of the mid 70s um, and and there still is that sort of mentality uh, in Dutch football, where where you know for a relatively small country, it does traditionally punch above its weight because of its commitment to technique and tactics, as arose as opposed to perhaps you know sort of raw power. Um, and City have said, well, let, let's go for this. We don't see NAC Breda as being a, a potential opponent. Uh, for Manchester City, they're probably not going to be uh, necessarily, uh, you know, trying to nip in for the Champions League places. So there's no conflicts of interest there, and, and it can be used as either a holding area uh, or a development area um, for for the group as a whole. I saw an interview with a Dutch journalist a couple of years back, which just made me laugh a lot because he basically said, if we could get some of our players to give up smoking. We'd probably win, we'd probably win a tournament within the next two years. He said, but it's a, it's a tricky job. Um, Derby County's administrators apparently spent the weekend assessing all the offers that have been made for the club. Um, talking to somebody in the insolvency business at our live gig, uh, mm. it wasn't. It was a rather eye opening conversation. It makes me think that the Derby County administrators may have spent that meeting in their vest with pizza watching Simpsons videos as well. But what will the criteria for that assessment be? And it, it may well be, Kieran, that as we're going out on Thursday and this is Monday, that we we know who the preferred bidder is. But again, it comes back to a question I always ask because people always ask me because they think it's the right answer. Is it always going to be the highest bidder? Um, the administrator's responsibility is towards the creditors of Derby County Football Club limited and given that those creditors are not going to get all that they've uh, supplied to the club in good faith um back then it would you under normal circumstances you would have to say yes it would be the highest bidder but i think we ne- then need to need to ensure that we look at the small print because what exactly are people trying to buy is it going to be uh, the the property assets? Because remember, Derby County's stadium is not included in the package. Yeah. Um, 
are the are the uh, prospective bidders are they simultaneously negotiating with Mel Morris, who has made uh, yeah I'm 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 I've not been uh, the biggest fan of the administrators, but Mel Morris snaffling the uh, the stadium um, for himself has made a a challenging job more challenging yes. because yeah. you know, ultimately what are you buying so so having to run things in parallel you know to try to make sure yeah we keep that we and, and this this is possibly the reason why if you take a look at what the administrators have said in their public pronouncements they've slagged off the EFL they've slagged off Wickham Wanderers they've blamed covid they've blamed uncle Tobley, uncle tom cobley and all the one person they've never said a bad word about is the person who appointed them as administrators yeah, 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 yeah. and the the person who will be approving their fees yeah. um so um you know th- th- there is this this added complication um so they will have to take that into account um they will be doing some some you know broad background work is there's no point us recommending a preferred bidder if we have evidence that such this person is not going to pass the owners and directors test so um you know th- th- I, I would imagine um they will be trying to make sure that uh, they have discussions with the bidders, um, which, uh, according to Simon Jordan, who I, I believe he was mentioned uh, at AFC Wimbledon last week. <laughs> um, yes, he, he was mentioned in, in various different emotional ways, Kieran. I refer to him as a wrong one, and you refer to him as your mate. <laughs> uh, we haven't got time to go into that now. The people who are at the gig will understand what that is. A, that is a, the first real curveball you've thrown me since about pod two. <laughs> so Simon Jordan, so you and Simon Jordan and Tracy Crouch together. My God, what would you do then <laughs> if you had Simon Jordan in one room and Tracy Crouch and another both calling to you? Well, Simon would be too busy looking in the mirror. That's, that's a fair point. That's a very fair point. Yeah. Um, but he seems to think that Mel Morris, uh, because because Mel Morris has guaranteed the money owed to MSD Holdings, who are the the main lender to Derby County, um, if if there isn't a bit, if, if there isn't a decent price for the club, then Mel Morris has to make up the shortfall. So Simon Jordan suggested, and I have seen this mentioned um, on on a few occasions before. Could Mel Morris now come in and try to buy the club from the administrators? Now I suspect that. That might cause a bit of bad feeling um, amongst all of the unsecured creditors yes, who supplied goods to Mel Morris's Derby County in good faith, and now are going to get twenty-five pence in the pound if they're lucky. Um, you know, Mike Ashley is is uh, not in it, but he's not out of it. Um, and and there was an article in the Newcastle Chronicle today from uh, Nick DeMarco saying that, as far as he's concerned, you know. Uh, Mike Ashley is is in the hard but fair category. You know, he, he's 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 a demanding client, but at the same time, you know exactly where you are with him, and he and he, and he does take advice. So, you know, I've, I've said that that Mike Ashley would not be the worst thing to happen to Derby because he'll he'll get the club on an even keel, and you'll have a more sustainable club. Yeah. So, Mike Ashley potentially involved. I believe there's still a local consortium. Their biggest challenge is how how are they going to get the money together. Um, and if they do get the money together, just how quickly? So, you know, it could be that we have one party who says, I can give you £40 million next Thursday. And then you've got another party who says, well, I can give you £45 million, but it's going it's to take us five years to get the money. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's the type of uh, scenario that the, the administrators will have to go through in determining which what they consider to be the best interests of the creditors. If Mel Morris was to do that, 
I mean, that's going to look like it was a deliberate tactic, isn't it? Really, it's going to look like that he was working with the the administrators to make that happen. I, I think Derby fans would be most unhappy about that. No, I, 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 yeah, I think I think it's unlikely because right. if he was going to do that, why not just go and do that on day one of the administration yeah, yeah. And, and save yourself six months of accountants' fees and an awful lot of cigars? Yeah, but uh, there is some optimism for Derby fans, though, in the fact that we are talking about bidders and offers. So it yes. looks like the two or three people are involved, which can only be a good thing. Uh, now, Bet365, the owners of Stoke City, have had a busy week, Kieran. First of all, they sold the stadium to themselves. Uh, now they've converted £40 million worth of loans to Stoke City into shares. Could you just for a moment, Kieran, take off your cynical hat, which I know you, you rare, rarely, rarely, uh, rarely wear, uh, and just shed some light into what's happening here and the timing of this? Yeah, um, well, as, as well as writing off £40 million of loans into shares, it looks off. It, lo- it looks like that they've written off another £120 million of loans, full stop, oh. um, which, which is incredibly generous um, on the face of it. Um, but uh, the, the alternative viewpoint is to say, are Stoke City Football Club ever going to be in a position where they can repay Bet365 £160 million? And... On the basis of what we've seen in respect of Stoke City's accounts, and again, Stoke City are a club that even in the even in the Premier League, and, and you thought, well, yeah, it's a decent club, solid club, no fancy dams, doesn't live beyond its means. It was still losing money in the, yeah. in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Bet three six five, um, you know, under the Coates family, who who are fa- who are fans of, of uh, Stoke City Football Club, have been very generous benefactors. Um, so I, the, I think to the what, area as well, not just to the football yeah, club. It has to be said, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, so I, I think this is sort of a, a formal acknowledgement that look, it's a bit like yeah, we, we've I've said sort of it's a bit like the bank of mum and dad where you know, I lend money to our kid. Uh, I know he's never going to repay me, and at some point in time, I'm going to say, well, you know that, uh, yeah, yeah, that that few grand I. I I lent you to uh, I lent you to to buy that car or to put down a deposit or a house or whatever it is. Uh, let, let's just forget about it. Now yeah. he knows, and I know from day one that I was going to say that at some point. <laughs> but it's just at that point where I'm he's not irritating me too much that I'll actually form and go, yeah, okay, let let's just let's just formalise this. So so that's what we're seeing um, with. Uh, with with uh, bet three six five, they they knew when advancing that money to um, to Stoke City that it was realistically never going to be repaid. Let's let's just make it formal, and it makes the accounts look better because instead of having huge losses and huge loans, they effectively are just zapped and disappear. Right, and is is the timing uh, relevant? Um, I I, th- I think. Uh, Stoke City's accounts are almost due. Um, there has been a lot of chatter on social media with regards to Stoke and, and will they fail financial fair play. And this doesn't actually make a blind bit of difference to the FFP calculations, but at least it will perhaps stop some of uh, Stoke's critics uh, uh, from from having a pop at them. But uh, I, I don't think it's... it's uh, it's more of a convenienced time than anything else. Yeah. And let's be fair, Bet365 can afford to write off those loans, can't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. They're, they're very, very successful. Yes. Liverpool have entered the non-fungible token market. I'm still not sure what they are, Kieran, but I do love saying fungible. <laughs> yes. So um, 
what what are Liverpool doing? Liverpool are selling um, legends cards, um, and they're selling them for you know. And, and yeah, we've had this discussion. It's it's a digital Panini card, yeah. And um, you don't know which one you're buying, so they they're going to issue um, quite a few of these. The aim is to to raise around about nine and a half million pounds. Um, they they are going to be sold for seventy five dollars a pop. So you are effectively, you know, it's it's a bit like a raffle or a tombola. You will be allocated um, one of these uh, one of these tokens, and it will be a cartoon picture of a Liverpool football player, and you're going to pay seventy five dollars for it. Um, and it is authenticated via the blockchain, and th- and this is where some people are getting a bit fed up because uh the the blockchain it's it's a bit like a letter of authenticity so i've you know i've got a i've got a football shirt signed uh from from my club to say this this is the shirt this is the shirt worn by paul mcshane when he scored the winning goal against crystal palace in 2005 when we beat you one nil now for me i've I, i could have any shirt but it's been signed by the player letter of authenticity from the club and that's great what Liverpool are doing is that they are saying the blockchain is is another method of giving that letter of authenticity. Are these tokens going to be worth money in the future? Well, history tells us that at least 90% of them are going to fall in value. Some might go up in value. So it's it's a lottery. And if you want to buy one of these tokens under those conditions, that's great. Um, but when I buy, uh, yeah, when I buy a Euro Millions lottery ticket, I don't say I'm a trader in lottery tickets or mm. I'm an investor mm. in lottery tickets. I'm just saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's it, it's a couple of quid. I don't mind doing it. Some of it goes to good causes, and I know in almost true, sir, yeah, you know, th- th- there's a 99% chance that I'm going to win absolutely nothing, and I buy it with that in mind. The issue with NFTs is there's a sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink uh, mentality from some of the organisations which are involved in the sale of NFTs. That well, you know, this, yeah, if you miss out on this, you, you're missing out on thousands. And you could say, well, isn't that exactly the same marketing campaign used by the National Lottery? Yeah. And it is, except. I think people who buy lottery tickets have a, have a better idea that they are probably going to lose. Do you know what, Kieran? I'd remember that Palace were bad in 2005, not that we were that bad that the bloke from Heidi High scored the winning goal against us. <laughs> when he was Ted Bovis scored the winning goal against us. This, I think this is an interesting story, Kieran, because we know that um, Liverpool fans, especially those fans based on Merseyside, are very well-organised, politically savvy group of fans. And my guess is that those Liverpool fans won't be bending over backwards to buy these non-fungible tokens. But, of course, Liverpool have millions of fans around the world, so they are going to sell, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and, and and I think if you take a look at Spirit of Shankly, who are who I've got a huge amount of admiration for uh, in in preserving L four, you know, uh, you know yeah. preserving true Liverpool, um, they've said. If we see you trying to market these as investments, expect us to come down hard on you. So um, if you if you just try to say, look, they're they're digital cartoon cards, and if you want to go and spend seventy five bucks on them at your own risk, then fine. But as soon as we start to see any hint from any of the parties involved that this is an investment, 
we 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 reserve our right to uh, you know drop our well not we're not giving we're not giving support but we're not we're not criticizing it yet yeah good for them um oldham's latest accounts show a tiny glimmer of good news for their fans at last uh well it, it is yes um i i was i was talking to the oldham chronicle earlier today i i i move in i move in places as you, you know um and uh oldham um first of all it, a little bit of care the accounts are unaudited um, oh, we don't know how much money they they made from the furlough, but it does appear that they've they've made a profit of around about a uh, hundred thousand pounds. But at the same time, they are second from bottom of League Two, yeah. and if relegated, uh, the, the loss of TV money is is the thick end of a million pounds. So um, it, it's it's a big drop from League Two to the National League, and you've only got to look at the clubs in the National League to realise it, it's not a walk in the park to, to get back. Yeah. You know, the num- uh, you know, we, we talk about yo-yo clubs. Well, there aren't many yo-yo clubs as far as League Two and the National League are concerned. It's it's a tough, tough division um, and pretty demanding. Uh, yeah, and, and I used to live uh, in Stockport, and I, I can remember Stockport being in the championship. Uh, yeah, and they they didn't just drop out of League Two; they they dropped out of the National League. They ended up in National League North. Yeah, they got a new owner, and they're coming back, which is great. I mean, Ed- Edgley Park is is one of those places you love because when I first went to university, it was Edgley Park on on a Friday night for football, uh, and you then go and see a match on the Saturday as well. Because in those days, yeah, even as a student, you could afford to do it because. Prices were, were geared towards the working, the working youth, and you could buy a ticket on the day, Kieran. Indeed, you yes. could just you could just turn up, queue up. That's another thing that young people don't understand these days. You don't, you don't actually have to get any points or go to a website. You just buy a ticket. Imagine that. It it, it is slightly strange, Kieran. As we started off by talking about the fact that Premier League clubs are, are making vast amounts of money from being in the Premier League, but none of them are actually showing a profit where you've got a club like Oldham and albeit is a small profit, but it is still a profit. Well, yes. And, and I think part of the reason for that is why are clubs in the Premier League losing in the money? Well, you've got, um, you know, you've got six clubs chasing four positions for the Champions League. So therefore they gamble to make sure that they're in the top four. You've probably got, at the start of the season, seven or eight clubs trying to avoid relegation to the championship. So therefore, they spend more money than perhaps makes sense because they don't want to go through the trap door because there is a big financial consequence of being relegated. And then you've got probably you know half at least of the championship at the start of the season thinking, we've got a fair chance of playoffs or uh, direct promotion. So therefore, we're going to gamble as well. So so. The system that we have at present encourages gambling. And in League Two, it doesn't because the difference in money between League Two and League One in terms of TV revenues is around about 400 grand. Yeah, yeah. Not, not to be sniffed at, but you, you wouldn't gamble the house on it if you were a League Two club. And, that, and that's why we tend to see much more sense and, and much more of a break-even approach arising in some of the lower leagues but not all of the clubs do that. Yeah. It may be, of course, that Oldham are making money because they've been sensible enough to sell the tennis balls in their own club shop. Because if your fans are going to interrupt every second game by throwing tennis balls on the pitch, you might as well sell them to them. Um, yes. More players at Barcelona are facing a pay cut. And uh, 
having just had that discussion, I can't imagine there'd be many Oldham fans now going, oh, my God, that's terrible. My heart is breaking. Yes, so this is uh, Gerard Piquet, Sergio Busquets, Jordi Alba. Um, I think they have uh, they're they're all you know they're not young players necessarily. Um, I think they're coming to the end of contracts, and uh, in terms of renewals, it looks like they they are going to have to take pay cuts um, because uh, according to Marca, which is the the Spanish football newspaper, they're owed a total of over 100 million euros uh, over the course of next season through a combination of salaries, delayed payments and bonuses. And what the Barcelona board are trying to do is is to pressurise them to to give up some of that money. Now, we're not that far away from what we were talking about in terms of Robbie Keane earlier. Nobody forces Barcelona to give these contracts to the players to begin with. And now what, what the club's trying to do is to emotionally blackmail and say, well, we can't afford to make any signings during the summer unless you start to make sacrifices. These players have played for Barcelona for many years. Many of them have you know, long-term, and, and they're Barcelona fans themselves. So it's a, it, it's a strange form of pressure that's being put on the players by the board. And let's face it, it's the board that got Barcelona into this mess in the first place. Yeah. Who signed Griezmann for 100 million? Who signed Coutinho for 100 million? Who signed Dembele for 100 million? It was the board of Barcelona. Yeah. <clears throat> Having talked about good news for Oldham, Kieran, less so for Colchester and for Aldershot. Colchester losing £50,000 a week in the last financial year and Aldershot £97,000 a week in theirs. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, uh, for, for Colchester... Um, Colchester again, a, a club. It doesn't. I, I've, I've been to Colchester's ground as an away yeah. fan. Um, it, it's a it's a nice day out, um, but you wouldn't think that you've got you've got a football club there that is is spending enough money to be losing fifty yeah. grand a week. Um, but it, it's not just that. If, if you take a look at the total losses, yeah, you know, it's it's not just fifty grand a week for last season. The losses have been going on for years and years. Um, and uh, I think the total losses are, are, are the thick end of thirty million. And here you do ask yourself the question: What have they had to show for it in, in terms of thirty million quid going out of the club? So um, you know that that it's 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 just the weird way of football. And and you've you've got to question what is the logic behind the decisions which are being made at board level. Surely, you know, we, we've spoken to some other clubs who who do take a more sustainable approach. Why not just say, this is our budget, we're going to stick for it, rather than, than taking such a risk? And again, it goes back to the fan-led review. There are too many clubs who are one owner or one ownership decision from oblivion. You know, if, if the Colchester United owners got bored, and you know, I'm hoping they don't. And there's no evidence that they will do. Of course, um, you know, then then you have got a problem because you've, you've got these legacy costs which which have to be recovered somehow. In, in terms of in terms of Aldershot, um, I, I think it, it was ninety seven thousand for the year. I think I oh, think, for the uh, year, beg your pardon. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah so, no, sorry. I think it was uh, yeah. our our script was uh, was a little wee bit ambiguous. My script, um, yeah. So yeah, non league. Another another evidence of Aldershot club that wants to. Get its way up, um, and and sometimes you you have to spend money to do so. Yeah, we had this question on the on the Monday show with regards to Salford City. How did Salford yeah. City get out of non-league into uh, League Two? Uh, 
it it was an expensive business and, and that's that's football yeah <clears throat> obviously there are a couple of Aldershot fans at our live show last week who I bonded with purely because both our teams play in red and blue that's how simple it is at a football level Colchester have got that rather nice new community stadium how was that financed Kieran it, it was financed by the owners. Uh, well, the owners was, are involved in property, I believe, and yeah, it, it is a. Is, is it called the Western Home Stadium? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's a, it, it's a cracking place, uh, and the away fans go behind one of the goals as well. Which is, as an away fan, that's where you want to be. Yeah. There's nothing worse than being stuck in a corner, uh, or sort of you know parallel to the the, the penalty box. Uh, yeah, behind the goal is is. That's that's where all the way that should be mandatory. Yeah, yeah that should be part of the fan led review recommendations. Proper football with with gobbing off at the opposing goalkeeper. Yeah, and, yeah. jumpers for goalposts, Kieran. No, while we're at it, um, <clears throat> gobbing off at the goal. Do you know? I, I you know that bizarre incident at, at Everton when the fan tied himself to the post. Yes, uh, not enough people remembered that Palace were on a pre season tour in the eighties, uh, and we were playing in La Havre. And while the play was up uh, the other end, uh, some Palace fans tied the French goalkeeper to a goalpost with a Union Jack, <laughs> which is totally wrong, but it's still one of the funniest photos. It's out there on the internet somewhere. It's one of the funniest <laughs> photographs you'll ever see in your life. Uh, and, of course, I disapprove wholeheartedly. One of oh, the recurring yeah. themes, Kieran, on Price of Football has been, and we are asked this so many times, how much an injury can cost a club and a player in insurance. Well, has uh, Howden, insurance brokers, just compiled a report detailing exactly that across the top five European leagues for the first half of this season? We thought it'd be a good idea to ask Divisional Director of Sports, James Burrows, exactly that question and all matters insurance related. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Pact Coffee. Big coffee is bad coffee, full of underpaid farmers and low-quality over-roasted beans, all of which just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Pact is changing the coffee industry from the grounds up. From paying a price that's more than fair to knowing farmers on a first-name basis, Pact builds long-term relationships that flourish, putting the needs of their partners first and providing coffee that's personal to their customers. With Pact, You'll get award-winning speciality coffee, freshly roasted to perfection for your order, and ground just moments before it's shipped. There's over 15 different coffees on the menu at any given time to choose from, including Great Taste 2020 and 2021 winners. So, make a pact to make better coffee now. Price of Football listeners get a free V60 and filter kit when they first sign up to a packed plan. Just go to packedcoffee.com. That's P-A-C-T coffee.com. And enter the code POF at the checkout to create your flexible coffee subscription and get that free brewing kit. Make a pact to make better coffee. Better for the farmer, better for the consumer, better for the planet. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. 
and Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. James, thank you for joining us. The The cost of injuries to players is without doubt one of the things we're asked about the most by our listeners. But before we discuss that and your report, tell us a little bit about your background and about your company, which I believe is owned by employees. Is that unusual in, in the insurance industry? I think it does make us um, reasonably unusual, Kevin. So we're, we're 35% owned by employees, um, which means that we're extremely client-focused. Um, it, it sort of engenders a very entrepreneurial in, environment. Um, and it also means that we're able to take a long-term outlook in terms of the results that we deliver for the clients first and foremost and, and for our business as well. Um, for me personally, um, I've been advising um, in, in football sort of clubs leagues and associations um, for the last for the last 15 years um, I was very fortunate to come into insurance and then to find my my way into the thing that I really love which is um, which is football and professional sport mm. and explain the distinction because you're a broker not an insurer is that right yeah so so we're the broker so so we work on behalf of the client so so we do sort of three things for the client we help them identify the risks that we face and then we help them to structure um, an insurance program which addresses the risks that they face, and then we go to the insurance market and to insurance insurers to to place that program and uh, obtain the best outcome for our clients in terms of both the cover and the price of that cover. Before we get into the detail of feeling the strain on the cost of injury in football this season, can I ask you a couple of the questions we do get asked most commonly? Because I, I want to make sure that we are answering them correctly. I'm, I'm sure Kieran is. But these are questions that to you will probably seem really obvious. But we get asked them so often that it's quite clear that our listeners are not really taking it in, which is something I understand fully, to be perfectly honest. Firstly, is insurance compulsory for professional footballers in the British game? So... Personal accident insurance, so player personal accident insurance isn't compulsory. So either for the club to purchase that insurance to protect their interests or for the individual player to purchase that insurance to protect their interests, that's not a compulsory purchase. The the only element that's compulsory in much the same way as it would be for the employee 
of, of any company is that in the UK, you must have um, employer's liability insurance, which protects the employer. So the club for legal liability in the event of an act of negligence that results in injury or illness to one of your employees. Right. And for those players that are insured, a Premier League club, for example, who pays the dividends and what would generally be covered? So in terms of in terms of who pays the premium, it, it depends on on who's taking out the cover. So you have a situation where where clubs will look to protect their interest in the player. So the asset value of the player. So if we if we start with clubs, there are very broadly speaking, three types of cover um, that a club can purchase. The first one is what's called catastrophic insurance. Um, and in very simplistic terms, that's protecting the total asset value of the squad if you needed to start again. So if you oh, lost yeah. the majority of your players to a catastrophic incident, so exa- for example, the plane falls out the sky, the bus goes right. off the road, there's a terrorist atrocity, um, then, then notionally that policy then responds to help you start again from a starting from scratch scenario. Um, it can be also be instructed in such a way that it doesn't have to be the total loss of the playing squad. Um, it can it can protect against scenarios. So for example, if um, if players are car sharing. So if there's if there's yeah. a car accident, depending on how the policy is structured, it can protect you against the loss of perhaps two, three, four players, for example. Which happened um, at Derby, Derby County a couple of years back, didn't it? So that's that that's right. Yeah. So exactly that sort of scenario, but yeah. but a sort of it would have to be a worse case scenario than that. So effectively those players either sustaining an injury which meant they could never resume their career or, or worst case scenario being killed in an incident right. like that. Right. Um, so sorry, it's a quite fairly grim place to start, isn't it? Let's um, let, oh, well, let's it's a really, we, we have to start, as I asked you the question, and I think people at home would be interested to know that that level of insurance even existed, because I, I certainly didn't. But it's this is why you're here, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then the second the second area is what we I'm afraid none of the terminology is particularly catchy. Um, but the, the second area is per, what's called permanent total disablement insurance and accidental death. So so there what you're doing is you're looking at the individual playing squad members and you're saying as a club, what do I need to insure in terms of asset value for the individual playing squad members if they sustain an injury, which means that they can't ever resume their professional career again or worst case scenario if they are killed in an accident effectively? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is the third one more cheerful? <laughs> uh, I guess it's relatively more cheerful. So, <laughs> so the third one is very much around temporary injury um, and wage roll protection. So again, catchy title, temporary total disablement insurance. Um, but effectively, what the club is seeking to do there is to protect against the exposure of play- paying a player's wages whilst they're injured for a temporary period of time. So you sign a new centre forward, um, he goes out and plays first time, and we've, we've, we've all seen this sort of scenario happen associated with our own clubs, haven't we? Um, new signing gets injured sort of first time out and then is absent for a period, say, of six months, yeah. um, then that type of cover effectively w- would respond to pay either a proportion of the salary or all of the salary for the period of time that that player is absent from playing. And, and what happens, I won't name him, but Palace had a player, a very promising young player that we bought who got injured very early on. And then over the course of two seasons, every time he, he tried to come back, he got injured again. Presumably he becomes more and more difficult to insure then, does he? 
Um, yes, potentially he does become sort of, or, or an individual player can be more challenging to ensure depending on their on their injury history so that's one of the that's one of the vari- variables that insurers will take into account alongside the age of the player which is the other sort of key variable when insurers are, set, are assessing the potential risk and can a, a player can presumably insure himself as well if you know a high profile england forward playing for a high profile premier league club if the club takes insurance the player can presumably take insurance out in case they miss out on uh, commercial contracts, uh, image rights, that sort of thing. That's right. So, so the club will will seek to protect their interests, and then individual players can purchase what's called career-ending injury insurance, or or players or players' own benefit insurance are the two ways it's most commonly referred to. But in effect, what you're what you're doing there as an individual player is you're insuring yourself against future loss of earnings should you sustain an injury which means that you can't resume your professional career effectively and that's an incredibly common form of cover i mean it would be pretty unusual now to find a player who isn't taking out that type of insurance in some way shape or form i have to say you really need to work on your euphemisms don't you in the insurance industry <laughs> um, we do we certainly need to be a little bit more catchy doesn't it to appeal to to appeal to the audience a last general question for you, James. How involved are insurers in the medical for a transferred player? So I mean, medicals, I mean, it depends on the on the type of insurance that's being purchased, but they wouldn't necessarily be directly involved. You know, if you take the scenario of, of sort of a Barcelona or a Real Madrid, when you've got, you've got the player going through the medical, which is probably for the man on the street, what we, what we all see. But the, the same principle will apply to all players in the sense that if they are an insured player, then the club's medical staff are usually required to complete what's called a proposal medical, which is then sent to insurers and, and reviewed by insurers. But that's not, that's not unique to a newly acquired player. That's a process that clubs have to go through for all of the players that they're insuring effectively. So let's get on to feeling the strain. It's a very comprehensive report, James revealing the total cost of injury at mid-season. Um, is this something you do every every mid-season or is this just something you've done post-COVID? So it, it was actually um, a project that we undertook um, for the first time in the in the 2020-2021 season. Um, so so last September, we, we published a full report um, for that season. Um, and, I, and I think it grabbed a lot of attention because it happened to sort of coincide with one of the most disrupted seasons that mm. we've ever seen across Europe. I've actually read it, which is unusual for me. I, I, Guy normally sends me the research and I, I kind of read the first line and the last line because I don't do numbers very well. But I thought this is really, really interesting. The, the total cost of injury so far this season across all five major leagues in Europe was 279.49 million euros. So how does that compare with the season before? So when we look at the season before, um, the, the first report we produced was was for the entirety of, of the season before. So there isn't a midpoint comparison that we oh, can okay. take. But if we look at the total cost of injuries across the course of the 2020-21 season, um, then the total cost was, was 472 million. So you can derive from that that we are very much on track um, to either hit or exceed yeah. that target, which makes it sound like a positive. It's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to sound like a positive, but certainly on track to exceed that figure, I would say. And, and which league paid out most? Uh, so the the Premier League, the English Premier League, um, paid out most, or have paid out most, certainly up to up to January this season. Do we know why? 
Um, I mean, the, the most obvious answer is that is that average salaries in, in the Premier League right. exceed those of the of, of the other four of the other four leagues around Europe. Um, I'd say there are also some some contributory factors around that as well. When you look at the first half of this season, um, and there are probably some mitigating circumstances. So if we look at the sort of the peak of the Omicron hit the UK and then had a downward impact in terms of the Premier League earlier than it would have done across the other European leagues. So a lot of those absences and potentially knock-on absences through injuries as a result of COVID absences, playing more games in a shortened period of time would have been seen in sort of earlier in the Premier League than perhaps they would have been seen in the other leagues. The mid-season break for the English Premier League falls later than the other leagues as well. So our mid-season break wasn't until late January, early February, whereas for the other leagues, that would have kicked in um, in late December in most instances. So that would have had um, a sort of negative impact from the Premier League perspective. Um, and also, if you if you look at December specifically for the for the EPL, then the sort of the lack of a mid-season break in December also contrasts with what is the the busiest time of year, as we all know, for the for the Premier League and for English football around that festive period. Yeah, because I was really interested to read the bit about the <clears throat> the Premier League was highest by some way for soft tissue injuries. Uh, is that all for, for those reasons that you've just explained that we're playing? way more matches than other people or because the matches were crammed into that Christmas period or are there other reasons for that? Yeah, I think I think that goes some way towards providing an explanation for why the Premier League um, was also leading the way in, in soft tissue injuries and uh, and particularly, particularly in December. I think for us, what will be interesting to see is whether or not that impact sustained beyond sort of mid-January into into February and March as well, which will be borne out in the in the full report at the end of the season. Does all this mean, uh, from an insurer's point of view, especially in terms of the, the soft tissue injuries and the amount of games that we play in England compared to other countries and the lack of break, does it mean, from an insurer's point of view, they would like to see fewer games and more substitutes so that insurers are tending to pay out less? I think from our perspective, the, 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 I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of the insurers. You know, you, we're, we're the broker, so our priority is, is to represent our clients um, in the process and help them to identify the risks, structure the programme, and then place that pro- programme with insurers. You know, for, for us, the intention of the report was very much to contribute to the debate and the conversation around things like five substitutes over the frequency of games that are being played but also to work with with clubs and with insurers to develop products that best suit their needs. So you're constantly working then as a broker, you're working with clubs to find ways of uh, finding them a better product as well, presumably, which which is interesting because I think a lot of people listening to this, I, th- I think insurers for a lot of people have the same sort of reputation as agents do because people don't understand the insurance business. And, and I think most people still have this sort of old 60s and 70s carry-on film type view of insurers where they think they're basically in it to make money for themselves. So it's interesting to hear that you're working with clubs to find ways of, of making their their life much easier, more streamlined and, and saving their money where they can. Yeah, I, from from our perspective, you know, our, our view um, 
as as Howden is that is that the sort of the football industry, and I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know here, but has 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 changed out of sight over the course of the last yeah. 25 to 30 years with um, with the broadcasting money that's come into the game, the inflation of player salaries. You know, the investment, you know, particularly from an insurance perspective, the investment in medical facilities and and how quickly players can can recover from injury. So, the the direction that we'd like to take the conversation is is that if, if things have changed that dramatically, then the products that support clubs and help them to mitigate the risks that they face really do need to need to catch up and, and address the exposures that clubs face, which you know over the course of the last twenty five to thirty years. Have changed um, pretty significantly. If I were to, if I were to sort of give give a perspective on that, I would say that some of the insurance products that are out there perhaps haven't kept pace in in the same way that the industry and the risks that the industry faces have evolved. We talk about this report being about the five major leagues. We know that different countries have different legal systems. Do do insurance systems? vary in in different countries or or is it pretty much the same industry wherever you are in the world um they can vary so so if you look at italy for for example in seria was one of the was one of the leagues that we we conducted the analysis for so so in italy for example you will have um sort of locally purchased or policies that have to be purchased locally in a certain way so there are certain personal accident policies that have to be purchased um, for employees in in that locality, and the same principle applies to players. Um, I think one of the other um, interesting points to note is is around player contracts. So you'll have s- scenarios in certain localities where players' contracts are guaranteed for the period of the contract, regardless of whether or not they're injured. Um, and the Premier League is a good example of that. When you look at other leagues around Europe, the contracts are not structured in the same way. So players. Um, players' contracts potentially don't respond after a period of time if they're injured for an extended period of time. So alongside sort of career-ending um, career ending insurance, individual players, depending on what league they're playing in around the world, will also look to take out their own wage role protection insurance to protect them at the point at which their contract will no longer respond to pay them if they're injured. So there are some sort of unique elements as you go around the various leagues around Europe. Yeah, this has been a really interesting interview, James, and I thank you very much for it. But what's something that's never occurred to me before when thinking about football and when thinking about the questions we get about insurance cover for players is that notion of recovery time for modern footballers being so much quicker than it has been in the past and how that affects insurance. Again, it's one of those things where, which is why it's interesting to talk to people like you with with insight, and it's it's interesting to talk to agents with their insight because for most of us as outsiders we just we just don't know these deals so i found that really interesting how that affects insurance the fact that players are probably expected to recover from major injuries three months or six months quicker than they would have been 30 years ago because not only are they fitter but the medical equipment around the clubs is so much more efficient I think there's there's that point, and then I think the other really important important point to note around the advances in medical care and medical science um, related to the treatment of players is that you know 25, 30 years ago you would have seen a much higher prevalence of career-ending injuries and the types of injuries that would have finished a, a player's career. It's extraordinarily rare now um, to see an injury sustained on pitch which results 
in in the end or the premature end of a of a player's career. And I guess that goes back to the point I was making around you know, evolving insurance products to meet the needs of clubs. That, that's actually quite a positive note to end on, the fact that there are so few career-ending injuries now. But, but one question, which I will ask you, because it crops up time and time again, it seems to really fascinate our listeners, is what happens, God forbid, to a player who decides his career has come to an end uh, because of injury, is paid out uh, insurance-wise, and then a year later, for whatever reason, is able to play football again and can take up a professional contract? Our listeners are fascinated by what would happen to that initial insurance payment or whether indeed they would be allowed to come back and play football again. That's quite a complicated, um, that's probably the answer to that is reasonably complicated, um, but in but in very, in very simplistic terms, and there have been examples of this across other sports. So if you are medically determined to have had your career ended prematurely by injury, and the policy that was in place to protect you have responded. If you then get a sort of second medical opinion and are able to return or resume your your professional career, um, then you know I, I must stress that the the sort of scenario will vary from from case to case. But but yes, ordinarily you would be required to return the settlement that you had received if you then go and resume your professional career at a later date. And finally, James, do you think at some stage there will be compulsory insurance introduced into football it's a really it's a really interesting question um you know, my personal view is that when you talk about player personal accident insurance that that i think it's unlikely you know particularly right. from a club perspective you know clubs are clubs are are, are run as businesses and, and they make business decisions in much the same way as as any other organization across any other industry in terms of what risks they're willing to accept and and what risks you know they would like to they would like to offset um, or find solutions to to protect against um, and I don't think football clubs are any different to be to be perfectly honest with you they they all have different ownership structures and they all have different perspectives in terms of how they how they evaluate and how they want to address the risks that they face so I, I can't foresee a situation where related to clubs that that, that becomes a, a compulsory purchase. James, it's been really interesting to talk to you. If, if you told me two years ago that there was a scenario by which I'd be doing a football finance podcast and being fascinated by an interview with an insurance broker, I probably wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have taken you seriously, but that's just exactly what's happened. So we really appreciate your time and thank you. Thank you. Kira, that was a really interesting interview and it was a it is a really genuinely interesting report, but I, I still I still can't quite understand, Kieran, why some form of insurance isn't compulsory, even a low payment premium that at least provide some cover. It, it turns out that my cat is better insured than some footballers, Kieran. That seems wrong to me. Yeah, uh, but remember, uh, your cat, you don't have to have insurance. And, and that's the argument that's put forward, that if you take a look at any business, um, it's a business decision whether to insure or not. And I think there might be a fear that if insurance was made compulsory, then would that be an opportunity to say, well, yeah, we, we've got a captive market, we can up, yeah, oh, we, okay. we can raise, uh, raise premiums. So, um, 
you know, the fact that there are some clubs that aren't willing to do it um, and they've they've made that decision. Is it because they're trying to force down the cost? Is it because they simply, you know, haven't haven't looked at it in, in enough depth? It's, it's difficult to say. Uh, but I've got to say that, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was it was a bit of an education for me listening to James. He's, he's a man that certainly knows his insurance onions. He certainly does. I don't know if you're clearly sure, onions, Kieran, but he certainly knows them. Uh, but again, as we said in the interview, it, it, it's like when we talk to agents, you know, fans don't understand these things, and it's because we've never talked about them before. That's why I've got no idea about insurance. I'm, I'm sure we are insured, but they're decisions that are taken way above my pay grade in the day household, essentially. Uh, I imagine. <laughs> I doubt if Alice, Ali might be scamming me. I don't know. Maybe she is creaming something off the top of those insurance premiums. I fork out. I don't know. Um, and talking of forking out, if you'd like to make a contribution to our Always Free to Air pod, then please go to patreon.com slash price of football. Uh, if you have any questions for our next questions pod or pods after that, email us on questions at priceoffootball.com. Before I hand you over to Mr. Kieran McGrath, his customary farewell, I will point out that at some stage in the merry old month of May, we will be going to Accrington for our second ever live Price of Football pod. And hopefully on Sunday's podcast, we will be on Monday's podcast, the Biggie Pod, we will be able to confirm that date. But it looks like it will be around the 15th of May, uh, and we will be looking forward to that very much. Then hopefully we can tell you the dates uh, of Peterborough, Plymouth, Jersey, and Belfast, fingers crossed. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, as always, thanks for the feedback. Um, it, it makes a difference to us. First of all, emotionally, we 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 are we are emotional guys. There's no doubt about that. Um, but also, um, if you if you do give us feedback using your app uh, for which you use to download your podcasts, and uh, you can give us a review, um, you give us five stars. It certainly helps, and lots of you have done so. So thank you very much for that. Um, it, it helps. Uh, it helps the algorithms which uh, our our overlords at Apple and Spotify use to to grade the podcasts, um, and uh, we, we we do sometimes break into the top thirty for for sports podcasts. Which, given this is a, a fairly niche show, is 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 well. We th- we thank you because <laughs> you, 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 it's, not, it's not down to us; it's down to you. Um, but it, you can write whatever you want about us, and and we we won't take it to heart. You could say you would rather have the show presented by the Cookie Monster and Fifty Cent. <laughs> And it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to the tables, according to producer guy, and he's the purpose person that we always take our advice from. Well, might have to be the Cookie Monster and fifty percent, fifty percent. That was deliberate. Uh, yes, because uh, the pod next week was due to be hosted by Chris Rock and Will Smith, but apparently, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why, but Guy tells me that's not happening for some reason, so we can't have our week off. So uh, 50%, that's terrible. Then. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>